Cool. While Malcolm's getting a beer, um, want to hammer through an agenda? Are we waiting on anybody? Did Alex Hey, us? can you guys hear me? I, yeah, we I can hear Alex. you. Awesome. Um, so my average brew is brewed already, Will, and it tastes pretty darn good. Um, I think Ordinary Bitter is a highly underrated style, in my opinion, and I, uh, I'm very happy to have one on tap. So, cool. Uh, so this is the September meeting. Our speaker, Malcolm, apparently is window uh, blinds, but that's all good. Apparently, he's going to um, go grab a beer. I'm going to mute all right now, so those of you that need to talk in a minute, uh, we'll get to make fun of Malcolm because he won't hear this. Uh, Malcolm, I put you on everyone on mute for a second just so we could get through here and, and be our kind selves going back and forth. Uh, but, yeah, thanks for everyone who came out last month. It was great hanging out with Chip Walton. He's a cool guy. Um, if you guys have anyone else that you want to see, uh, so far, it's like we're, we're happy. If you, got, if you know people that are awesome, uh, let us know, and if you can get us to hook up on some great speakers. Uh, Malcolm was gracious enough to grace with their presence today, but if you want to see somebody to come hang out and chat with us or ask questions, present something, let us know. Um, Alex will throw up the emails or Hava or somebody will. Will at the Brew Club, Haven at the Brew Club, um, Hava at the Brew Club, Alex, who did I miss? Uh, but yeah, email one of us, and we'll, we're open to all these ideas. Um so like I normally plug every meeting, uh, the Brew Club has an experiment series that we partner with brewlosophy.com for. Um, if you get an article published, you will be uh, voted on a fan favorite article and get put in a drawing for a Delta Firm Tank. So it's pretty awesome that you get the opportunity to compete against uh, just six other articles, I think, to get a stainless steel firm winner. So how awesome is that? Uh, we'll announce the winners somewhere around the December time frame. Um, Again, for details on that, email me or Alex, and we're happy to hook you up. Um, last week was the uh, Powerade versus uh, water experiment in a Belgian wit, I believe. And I think that actually got the most clicks on the Relosophy.com website uh, for the year. <laughs> so, um, so love it or hate it or just don't understand it, that's it. Uh, next month, we have Julia Hertz. Uh, some of you might know her as the executive director of the American Homebrew Association. Uh, she has at least uh, a couple of decades of experience in the brewing industry, including prior roles the Brewer Association, uh, award-winning homebrewer, BJCP judge, uh, advanced Cicerone, beer educator, and then she's got a couple books, Beer Preparing, The Essential Guide, uh, and then craftbeer.com's Beer and Food. And then Haven's got some announcements to make as well sorry i didn't put yours together but you can skip yep. over alex and do yours together oh yeah okay uh average brew is so we are in the last month of quarter three which is kind of crazy to think about um that we're already thinking about quarter four but we still have the big one the podcast coming up for the ordinary bitter so i think most of you guys if you've brewed it you put your name on the post uh throwing your name in the hat to get drawn we haven't had as many people post this time as of yet so we may just kind of throw every we, we've still had a pretty good amount i think in the past we've had like pushing 40 and i think we're right around 23 um so i think we might just throw everyone in there and just pick from the whole pool again so if you've won in the past we might just include you in and, and pick up from everyone so 
that'll happen um, the third. I don't know, maybe next week or something, we'll do some drawings. Uh, we'll get those names selected and then we will kind of coordinate with Marshall to make sure that we can ship closer to when he's actually going to record so we don't have another you know, oxidation incident <laughs> as we did last time. But I think that was a yeast issue. So we'll just, uh, we'll chalk it up to that. Uh, moving on quick. We've been looking for more ways to get the club together and just and just have fun and talk about things that maybe aren't beer. So Thursday night, we drafted for the TBC Fantasy Football. So I know Alex will. Uh, I think Jason, you're in that. So we had we have a fantasy football league that we're doing this year uh, just, just for fun, just something outside of beer, just to get some of us together. And one of our other ideas is Discord Trivia Night. So we are going to... Do, there's a there's a oh shoot hey will you want to meet everyone again oh no he made it. okay we're good so uh we there's a cool little bot on discord that we can use to do some trivia just just fun it's quick it's like 30 seconds a question it's we're doing different topics i have a couple beer related quizzes made up we have some that are not be related and they're just fun so we'll uh we'll get together and do that on discord i'll, I'll drop the, the discord link in the chat here a little later us uh, so you can sign up and then oh, oh alex beat me to it look at that um so join in come on over it'll be a lot of fun uh hopefully in the future if it catches on and we're, we're having fun with it we can have you know some little prizes and stuff for people who win um but just another thing to get together outside these meetings and and have you know 20 or 30 minutes of fun on a weeknight or something like that. So um, yeah, if you have any suggestions for that or if you're interested or think it's really stupid, uh, let me know. Alex, go for it. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Haven. Uh, so yeah, <clears throat> probably should have written something in advance. But uh, yeah, in a couple of weeks from now, we're going to uh, make an, an official announcement finally for uh, paid membership. Uh, officially for 2023 and uh, yeah I think we can all agree that uh, you know Haven's been extremely generous taking his own time and money shipping it's... out average brew yeast uh, no, it's like a... oh. and uh, but I think we can all agree you know maybe he shouldn't at least have to pay for it so I think it'd be awesome if you know one of the first things we tackled with paid dues was a uh, covering shipping out the Lalamon and Imperial yeast. And then naturally, the second thing that we're excited to do with dues is uh, start having our meetings on Microsoft Teams, just to have all the benefits that that has, of course. But I think a lot of people have been asking about making sure that meetings are recorded and viewable afterwards. And I think Microsoft Teams should make it really easy for us to record meetings and high quality video and post them later. And uh, so those, those are kind of the two first things we want to tackle with a paid membership. But uh, after that, I think we're going to keep it pretty open and kind of ask paid members what they want to do with dues. For example, do we want to prioritize trivia night or things like that. So uh, yeah, so look for a link probably about 10 days from now about paid membership. Uh, 
if you sign up now, uh, the paid membership benefits will also cover the remainder of 2022. So yeah, pass it back to Will. All right, um, tonight I am super stoked. We have Malcolm from uh, an emeritus brewlosophy contributor, whatever that big fancy word means. Uh, I, I believe he's a pro brewer, contribute, uh, BSTP judge. Uh, what, what other credentials you got there, Malcolm? Make sure to unmute yourself. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I guess I'm a advanced Cicerone and I think I've got sensory training. Um, I used to run a sensory lab and a quality lab at Fatheads. I don't know, a lot of stuff. I mean, beer has been my life in some way or another since the uh, late nineties. So, um, you can probably ask me awesome. a lot of questions and if I can't find the answer, if I don't have the answer, I can lead us to where to find it later. You know, I've been fortunate enough to spend a lot of my time researching this nerdy shit and I have a lot of friends in the industry who can find us the answers. So I like these kind of things. I like, I'm still a home brewer at heart. I like talking with home brewers. Um, I like trying to balance the, um, the technical with fun and nerdy, you know, kind of live in that zone. So let's have some fun. Let's ask, ask some questions. It doesn't have to be serious. It can be, it can be stupid. It can be goofy. It can be personal. So. Well, dude, what have you been up to, uh, since, um, I mean, it was a while in COVID we knew you were kind of in limbo yeah. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you fell off the velocity radar. So, so what's, what's your journey been like, man, a lot of us listen to podcasts and whether we had a personal relationship with it or not, like, I know I, I care about what's going on with you. So what's up, man? Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Appreciate that. Uh, so right on COVID, you know, I was at Fatheads. So I left Miller Coors, went to Fatheads and, uh, cause it was closer to home and I had a job offer down in Georgia to run a place down there, but that was going to be more production manager, brand manager. And then the, the Fatheads offering, I had become, you know, acquaintances with a couple of people at Fatheads, most importantly, Matt Cole, the brewmaster, through homebrew stuff, through like uh, competitions. And, and I think I did a collab with them once or twice. And anyways, I, I parlayed that relationship into a job offer, which was bringing me close to home. So Cleveland's only two hours from Pittsburgh. Well, COVID hit and uh, Fatheads had just done a large expansion, which is one of the reasons why I was there. They had just, they had created the quality role for me. So I was in charge of like, you know, yeast propagation, sensory, um, some innovation, some recipe development, you know, with the oversight of the team, of course, and, and that went two ways, right? And I oversaw the team, the team oversaw me. It was a collaborative effort. Um, but COVID hit and they were so big, almost 70% of the business was distribution. Well, when stadiums go away, concerts go away, restaurants go away, uh, money goes away. And I was new. And, uh, you know, they laid me off at first. They laid off a lot of people and they did some callbacks and they called me back for a role that this didn't fit me and my family's life. I had left the nuke industry to get away from shift work. And they asked me to come back as like a swing guy, you know, like, Hey, do some, do some lab work, do some cellar work, do some brew work because I was able to do all those roles. So I was like, yo, thanks for throwing me a lifeline, but that's not the life I want right now. <laughs> um, so someone posted on, on Facebook, an old brewing acquaintance from Pittsburgh, which is where my wife is from and said, Hey, do you want to come lead the team here? I'm doing an expansion. So that seemed to work, you know? And, and so I got to lead a team. I'm leading a team now at, at hop farm. Um, we doubled the capacity there, which wasn't a big bite because they were so small, but uh, we doubled the capacity. 
I think we really improved the Instagram, the uh, social media, the labels, uh, the brand, the brand positioning in the market. We've really, really come a long way. And that was my role. My role was to come and make the organization a little more mature. So teaching the sales force how to talk beer, teaching the front of house people how to talk beer, doing continuous tasting, saying, what are we tasting here? Is this better or worse than the last version? Is it different? Uh, how do you think it's different? Uh, what was the process involved? Uh, a lot of it's kind of process stuff that's kind of boring to talk about for the average person, but you know, ops people and, and managerial people get excited about SOPs and uh, rigorous um, processes and uh, saving money by propping your own yeast and doing cell counts and uh, taking, you know, you know, ATP readings for for sanitization and, and all that all that kind of stuff. Tr trying to make the organization a little more mature, a little more operating like a larger brewery, because that's the space you want to get to, you know. So uh, somebody wants to know what you're drinking. Uh, so a, a buddy of mine, this is actually one of the first collabs I ever did. So I thought this was fortuitous. Uh, Lavery Brewing up in Erie. So uh, Lavery, uh, owned by uh, Jason and Nikki Lavery, uh, they were really, really cool. Back when I was home brewing and first came from Hawaii out of the Navy, they were just kind of reaching out to home brewers and stuff on, on like Three Rivers Alliance of Serious Home Brewers. That's trash and Troub, which is Three Rivers Underground Brewers. So they reached out and said, hey, you know, is anyone interested in, you know, doing some batches, or whatever, we, we host local home brewers. It's kind of fun. So we started chatting. This is probably like 2004 or five. And he's like, yeah, man, you should just come up. You should be surprised. He said, you'd be surprised. Almost no one takes us up on the offer. I was like, fuck it, you know, loaded up some home brews that we could share and drove up to Erie, you know, an hour and a half away. Uh, and we brewed this beer used to be called Leopold or it's probably backwards for you guys. Does it flip it for you guys? I don't know. Is it backwards? It flips it. It, it flips gold it. So it says gold leopard. Gold leopard. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So gold leopard. Yeah. Well, it used to be called Leopold or which is uh cause Lavery's Irish and I'm English. So we like to tease each other. He calls me English. I call him Irish. Um, uh, gold leopard was one of their first beers. They, they brewed, large scale and it was a Britannomyces condi bottle conditioned uh, Saison and it won GIBF gold and it hasn't won since. So I always tease Jason. I say, well, you know, that was the batch we brewed together, but I thought it was kind of funny when we were talking about having this podcast and I thought this was appropriate to open because of the uh, homebrew roots. This is my first uh, collab, you know, pro-am beer and it won a GIBF gold. So <laughs> it's a good beer. That's badass. Uh, I think uh, Will Aller wants to know, uh, describe more, Georgia, the place where you're working at, was that the schoolhouse or where were you working in Georgia? Oh, so schoolhouse, those friends of mine, uh, those guys owned a, those guys owned a homebrew shop when I was down there and they were in planning for a brewery. I was attached to Miller Coors when I was in Georgia. So most of my time was spent with the sales force, uh, marketing team, but also some interaction with Terrapin Brewing. Uh, they were really cool, especially uh, during the transition. Uh, I was trying to improve my knowledge about the operations on, on the big, the big brewery side. And they were very cool about like, let me hang out and ask questions and poke around. And, you know, we, I helped them too, because my role was education innovation. So talking with their sales team, uh, doing a lot of work with 
in the market. Uh, talking with their brew lab down by the stadium, you know, those, those brewers are super on top of their game. They're, they're very sharp brewers. So they didn't, they didn't need someone to come in and like fix it. You know, they, they didn't need any of that, but it was more about, um, you know, how to speak to the market, how to, how to use our selling terms in a way to leverage uh, education and get them to buy into the fact that we're beer people, especially when Terrapin was bought by Miller Coors. Some people do the, oh, big beer, no thank you thing. But when you can bring a team in that shows that they're really passionate about beer, um, when you're competing against local small breweries, I think it kind of added a little bit of uh, gravitas, a little bit of uh, authenticity, especially because the roots of Terrapin, you know, they were, they were small time brewers and they were home brewers. And it, it seemed a shame that their, you know, their um, coolness goes away a little bit when you're acquired by a big brewery, which is part of the deal. But they were still good people. Some of the best people I've still met in the industry. Uh, they like to party. They, they're out there in Athens and they like to have a good time. They have their barbecues and events and their anniversary parties and uh, if you're ever in Georgia, I would go to Terrapin. It's pretty awesome. Um, did the schoolhouse offer you any kind of brewery job? Will that was Will's follow up? Oh uh, no, not directly. Um, Todd, uh, Tom, pardon me, Tom um, was really cool when I was there, and he asked for help, not like because he needed it. Once again, he was a very sharp individual, but just like we became quick friends, and he said, "Yeah, when I open up, I'd really like to, you know, collab with you and do some stuff with you," but. Um, Tom and Justin were on top of the brewing. You know, they knew, they knew what they were doing. They had it under control. They didn't need me. Uh, they just, we just liked hanging out with each other. So it was more like a, hey, come hang out, brew some batches and, and do some stuff. But then when I got the job offer at Fatheads, I had to kind of leave real quick. And they were, you know, neck deep in the process of transferring over to that spot that they're at now. Uh, so, you know, no, no formal job offer, just, um, let's continue to hang out and be cool. Cause they, they're cool dudes, you know? So, so Brent asked a very uh, poignant question about any tips on a job in the brewing or home brewing world that can make enough money to support a family. And are they just unicorns that don't exist? They don't, they're not unicorns. Uh, what happens is you have to have something that separates you out. And uh, <clears throat> that could be your perspective. It could be your experience. Uh, your background. So for me, you know, I wasn't a multi-year, you know, experienced brewmaster somewhere, right? I was, um, I was a home brewer who worked for a big beer company, not as sexy to some people. Um, so you have to bring something. And to me, it's usually education. You know, usually I can bring in some beers and, and like, it was, it's easier. It's easier if in your hometown, if you're well, if you're pretty well known for brewing. So in Pittsburgh and Cleveland, eerie and surrounding because I had done a lot of competitions. I had done some classes. I had gone to breweries and consulted on water chemistry. I had consulted on recipe creation. I made a lot of sour and funky beers. And back in the uh, early 2000s, not a lot of people were doing it certainly well. So I was able to bring that to the table like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll uh, curate your barrel program or I'll train your brewers on how to do blending. Um, and then because of my background in the nuke industry, you know, that gives you some nerdy uh, credence, right? It gives you a little bit of gravitas there because they believe that you're a nerd and they believe that, you know, process control, you can speak the scientific language. Um, but to me, 
to me, the number one thing is if you're trying to break in, if you're trying to break in, it's show that you've done some background work. So I get a lot of people who apply and like maybe they've sellered somewhere or done a lot of packaging run somewhere, packaging line somewhere, are there home brewers? But they're not particularly well-educated. Home brewers are packaging line people. It's like, yeah, you have experience. I believe that you cannot kill yourself in a brewery environment. But what have you been reading? What do you, what do you listen to? Uh, have you gone taking classes? Are you, you know, a Cicerone or a BJCP judge? You know, tell me that you recently read how to brew. And then let me ask you some questions about that. But a lot of these people just show up and go, I'm eager, I'm ready to work. I'm like, okay, you know, show me something. Show me something that you did. And the last person I hired, you know, she went out and got an internship working you know, from packaging on the way up over a course of several months. So that was like her, I went and got it, right? And she's not making enough money, in my opinion, but she's making above average in the area, you know, for the brewing position. In order to be making decent money to earn a living, I think you need to go to a place that's probably making over a thousand barrels a year, you know, preferably three to five. You probably need to be in charge of one or two locations. So usually a, a brew house and a tap room. Um, and you have to make sense. You have to show that you making 60, 70, $80,000 a year is worth it because some clowns willing to come in, undervalue the workforce, work for 45, 50, which I don't know how you live on that. Uh, but people do it because they, they like the job so much. They want to enter the brewing industry. So they're willing to work for, you know, 18 bucks an hour, you know, and to me, we're devaluing our industry. And uh, a lot of times owners and investors, they see somebody who worked at, you know, I'm not sure where all you guys are from, but let's just say you're from it. You're from Atlanta, right? So you're from Atlanta or here in Pittsburgh, I'll use here in Pittsburgh, you worked at Penn Brewery. So Penn Brewery is an established brand. It's been around for a while. You say, yeah, I worked at Penn Brewery for five years. They go, oh my God, he's got experience, you know? I'm going to hire this guy. He only wants $45,000 a year. Meanwhile, one of you who might have a, a job somewhere, you know, that where you make decent money, hopefully, and you're like, oh yeah, you go in and you say, well, I can't do this for less than 65, 70. They're going to look at you and be like, well, why, why should I go with Bob when, you know, this guy over here has been working for five years at Penn Brewery. That's, that's a resume, you know, but they don't know that he can't make good beer. You know, it's, it's really, really tough. We're in a weird spot in this industry where, a lot of people who are in charge of payroll and have the pocket uh, string or the purse string control, they don't value brewers. They don't value us. They don't value seller persons. And usually in my opinion shows, shows up in the quality of the beer, but guess what right now you go to a, a, a tap room or a, a brew place that's popular. They're probably baller at uh, marketing great with their Instagram and their Facebook their labels look awesome and the beer is mediocre and the crowd doesn't care. So why would they pay you 65, 70, $80,000 a year to make beer that's a nine or a 10 when a beer that's a six does just as well? You know, the consumer is just not uh, marketing. Yeah. Marketing is a hell of a thing. And uh, I get sucked into the Instagram too. Cause you start seeing all these cool beer releases. You're like, well, why the hell not? Do I want to go not go there and try that thing. So it works, you know, and humans were predictable creatures and very reliable, very predictable. And, uh, you know, 
pretty pictures of foam coming out of a glass and uh, an attractive uh, person, be it male or female, you know, get the arm sleeve and you have a, a nice, you know, pint of beer and, and it looks nice and they have some fruit around it. If it's a fruit and sour, people are like, I want to go there, you know, and uh, the average, the average person, you know, buys McDonald's. So, you know, to them, a beer that's non-poisonous, like a six or a seven, you know, just to use a scale out of 10, they're okay with that because they're there for the vibe. They're there for the crowd. They're there for the marketing, you know, and making a, a bomb ass freaking ESB, they give two shits about that. They get, you know, we're talking about the, the masses, you know, we, we're, we're 5% might be gracious. You know, we're 2% of the market, you know? I, I agree. And, and it, I think, uh, I, I don't know, definitely more, more needs to be done to get, hazies fewer hazies on tap in my opinion that's just me <laughs> i make them all day uh you know cool. I, I make them all day i'm sure you do they sell like crazy you know it's fruit and sours too you know it's like a you, you ever see glenn gary again ross you guys know right. familiar with them, that uh, who's the gentleman up here in the blue shirt nodding that's i didn't will. hear you you're, you're muted that's you're will muted. he's will yeah Hey, yeah. hey what's up, man? Um, you, you in sales or anything like that? Marketing? Uh, I've done some sales. Yes. Yeah. Quite a bit. So, so watching Glenn Gary and Ross is like a rite of passage for sales. But, you know, they always be cleaning, you know, always, always be closing. So in the brewery, it's, you know, you should always be brewing a hazy. You should always be brewing a fruited sour. So if you have a fruited sour and a hazy in the tank, then you're allowed to brew another beer. <laughs> if you don't have a hazy in the tank or a fruited sour in the tank, you're fucking up. Yeah, you're screwing yourself or the owner, uh, the investors. Uh, you should always be brewing a fruit and sour and a hazy. Uh, it, you know, if that's your thing. There's some breweries that refuse to do them. Uh, but that's just the way it is. You know, I, I juggle, I juggle tank space with with hazies all the time. I go, oh, I just brewed a 7.5% hazy. I should probably brew like a low 6% hazy. Oh, I just brewed a 6% hazy. I should probably do an 8% hazy. So I'm always brewing a hazy IPA or hazy pale ale, and I'm always trying to fit in a lager or an old world style. Like we just did a, a smoked salt lime goza. You know, it's Alderwood smoke. You know, so that's going to be for the culinary nerds, right? That's a small, small segment. Most people don't give a fuck that you have Alderwood smoked soap, uh, smoked salt in that goza. Uh, to them, the average person drinks sea squinch from dogfish head so now you're doing a trick you're bringing this nuanced like really nice home smoked salt into this equation and people are just like oh it tastes like a campfire isn't that neat you know so whatever you know that's that's the world we live in well and uh so i'm a big fan of rock beer and uh i, I love that style and somebody posed a question it was like a, i think it was a byo or something article and they're like dude we live in the world of barbecue bacon yeah smoked everything and we can't sell a effing smoked beer to anybody yeah so it's crazy to me we just did muza which is polish for muse uh we did a grozgitski aka grotzer and we used locally smoked malt so uh, there's a maltster about an hour and a half north of us called uh cnc custom some custom and craft malting, whatever. Um, awesome people. And I said, Hey, I need, I want to make a grazer. Can you smoke some wheat for us? 
And I think he heard it differently. He's like, yeah, we're smoking weed right now, man. <laughs> you know, but I was like, no, wheat. I need some wheat malt that's smoked. So he smoked it and it's like 30%, you know, locally sourced smoked wheat. So it's really intense. So if you take a bag of like a Vireman oak smoke and smell it, I took this stuff that they gave me, which is only smoked a couple days, like a day or two ago. It was so strong. So I had to use less of it, but it sold pretty good, man. So, but, but isn't that part of the process? Like I know a lot of, uh, at least the maltster I know of here in Texas, they cold smoke it. Whereas like wiremen, they're like still, they're killing with like fire, right? Like I think it's a different process. Different process. I don't know what Vireman's process is. So if you're a rock beer fan, maybe you can speak more intelligently on that. What I do know is it could be processed like you're saying, but it could also be just the fact that they do a huge batch. Some of it sits in a silo and then a car and then a bagging uh, facility. So I don't get it two days after smoking, you know? Um, right. But it could also be that process. I, I, I know CNC cold smokes. But it's it's not cold right. like cheese. It's cold like you know 110 degrees, 120 degrees. You know, so they bring over right. the smoke into a cold room, a vessel they have with grates, and uh, I think they do they do spray it so it has a little bit of moisture, so it helps pick up the smoke. Um, but I think the beer is pretty pretty good. We we teamed with this Reek and Rock beer. Are you on that? Are you in that group? Oh, I love this Reek and Rock beer. John Hall's great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So John Hall and them, we teamed up with them and did that Musa. So that was a release for Homebrew Con. And then because they were in town this week in Rockbeer, we had a smoked double bock, doppelbock from uh, East End. And then my buddies at 11th Hour, they did a uh, smoked Hellas. So we had three smoked beers on tap, which is like unheard of, you know. No, John, John Hall's great, and he's super cool. Like, if you're into Rauk beer, you can you can email John Hall, and he'll respond to you within, like, a day. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, I've uh, got some hazy questions that kind of cropped up. Uh, mm -hmm. Hayden wants to know kind of your percentage of hazies to fruited sours make up your total beer sales. Um, someone else has questions about thialized yeasts in yep. hazies. Yeah. So, percentage, um, I bet you – hazies and sour combined is like 50 to 60 percent of our sales um hazies is almost usually two to one so if we have you know and you start to cannibalize right because if you have three hazies on do you count that as hazy yes you do right so if we had three hazies on that would probably make up like you know 30 percent 40 percent of the sales and then the fruited sours would be like 20%. And then everything else switches out. Um, our light, we have a light lager we do. That's consistently like number three. So no matter what else is on the, on the menu, the light lager is number three usually. And then funny enough, right now we have a mild on. And that's usually like number three or four. But everything else kind of switches around. So if we like for Oktoberfest uh, next week and the week afterwards, that O-Fest beer will probably be number one for two weeks, you know, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's still number two behind a hazy, which is a shame, but that's the way, that's the world, you know. Um, so, so kind of piggybacking on that. So, so Jonah, you know, he says he lives in hazy central cause he lives up in Maine. 
Yeah, um, sure. But he's saying that a lot of the long-time hazy breweries are starting to make a lot of other styles, and so there's kind of a an interest shift in some of those areas. Are y'all noticing that as well, or is it not so much? Yeah, so we, we've been doing a lot of West Coast right now. And, and matter of fact, uh, today's Saturday. Friday, we have a, a party called Socks and Sandals, and it's going to be like um, – you know, kind of like a beach rock band and a DJ afterwards. Uh, everyone's encouraged to wear sandals and socks and, uh, you know, just kind of do like the West Coast vibey thing. And what we did is we invited a bunch of local breweries who are making clear beer. So if you're doing a clear West Coast IPA or a clear APA, you were invited and it's just a tap takeover. Um, I think we're doing like free tattoos and shit for a couple hours, but it is a celebration of clear beer, old school, West coast, like Sierra Nevada type, you know, uh, uh, Firestone Walker or Lagunitas and, uh, stone, those types, you know, Dale's paleo, those type of older school IPAs. And right now in the market, like in tap room, hazy still rule for sure. But in the market, so like your pub houses, if you, I don't know where, you know, depending on where you guys are, but you probably have like a, a couple of chains that aren't chains like Applebee's, but they're chains like uh, there's three or four of them in your area. And one of those around here is Mad Max. So Mad Max, and we have another place called Industry Public House, and they have a couple locations. They almost always order more West Coast IPA than Hazy's because their crowd is older. Their crowd is eating food. Well, Hazy's don't, in my opinion, don't do well with food. They're too... Uh, sweet they're too full on your palate uh they're like a bomb of hops in your mouth so it just obliterates your palate uh west coast yeah they i mean they especially the old school ones we had like that ibu race for a while with like palate wrecker and all that stuff but a well-balanced west coast is great for food right it's dry it's well attenuated it has an firm it has a firm bitterness but that drops off and you have uh, a lot of gypsum which adds to dryness um so you drink a West Coast IPA if you're if you're eating something fatty like a hamburger or whatever like Industry Public House and Mad Max sells a lot of Latin fusion stuff so it's greasy you know full of flavored stuff. You wash it back with an IPA, it scrubs it off your palate, and then you want another bite of your hamburger. That's not the case with the uh, most hazies. Most hazies are not very bitter. Most hazies are just so thick and creamy and have so much flavor going on. You have a whole glass, you know, a sixteen ounce glass of a seven eight percent hazy you often don't want to eat much, you know? So that's not great for these food places. You get, you get palate fatigue just like two drinks in. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's palate fatigue. It's clash, very clash. I mean, there's some things you can pair food with hazies, you know, well-made hazies. I am of the opinion it's not as easy and it's not designed for eating more than just a, a small light fare. Uh, so West coasts are getting real popular around here. Uh, but again, which is nice to see. And I agree with you, you know, leading on to the main thing, a lot of places who are making hazies because they sell and maybe they are hop aficionados. They probably started as homebrewers way back when they were brewing freaking, you know, Amber Ales and California Common and, you know, uh, Cream Ale. So they were brewing those things 15 years ago and they're kind of just getting nostalgic and they're just like, wow. I'm just going to brew like one or two of these. And I think a lot of the crowd's sitting back almost going like, Oh my God, like, well, you know, Jim's a big brewer 
and he, you know, he works at Bissell or, or, or this guy works at, you know, Alchemist or he came from, you know, name drop all you want uh, locations. But when they see these high uh, profile brewers making like a Cal Common, they buy into it. You know, they, it's like instant gravitas, right? You know, you, you have, the resume is because this person's making it or this brewery's making it. So I think now some of the crowd is, is accepting those old school beers, you know. Whereas so one of the most beautiful things I've, I've seen in a while is uh, Dick and I, who's, who Dick Wallace is his name on this thing. We were at a brewery here locally in San Antonio a couple weeks ago, and that brewery was slammed. Like, couldn't hardly get a seat, and they didn't have a single IPA, hazier or otherwise, on tap. And you're like, yeah. man, this is wild. They had some Belgian, some old worlds. It was fantastic. Um, so uh, Scott was asking if – no, Alex was asking if there's any, like, standouts for the non-hazies that are kind of coming forward. And then there were some comments on some uh, craft lager scenes that have been uh, kind of cropping up in different places and what your feedback might be on that. Standout non-hazy meaning in the market? Right. Like, what are you seeing selling that's non-hazy that's kind of moving up? Well, I don't travel as much right now because um, of my jobs and coaching my kids' soccer, whatever. Um, but locally, I said the West Coast are getting real popular. And, you know, it feels like 2008 again, but Saison's. So people are making Saison's again, but not necessarily calling them Saison's. Pardon me, Burp. Uh, they're doing more like a mixed firm. So it'll be like a Saison yeast with something else. And they're calling them farmhouse or rustic ales, or whatever. And they're offering, offer, yeah, often layering in something else. So it's not just a Saison. It's like a Saison with uh, chamomile. It's a Saison with some exotic fruit. It's a Saison with some exotic spice. I see a lot of that happening locally. But by a lot, I might just mean like two or three breweries, but they're popular breweries. So that's kind of neat to see. We just did a beer called May Queen, uh, which was an, uh, an allusion to Midsommar, the, the, the horror movie. Or it's not really horror as much as it is, uh, well, I guess maybe it's a horror movie. But So we did a, a collab with Make, um, a, a podcast called Halloween is Forever. So they do a lot of horror movie stuff. Halloween is Forever. And then we also collabed with a local apiary, so the, a, a beekeeper. So we used her honey. We used a local tea shop owned by a woman, uh, keeping with the May Queen theme. So we used her tea. So it has local honey and local tea. And then we used malt from that CNC maltster because he was local. We used some buckwheat and unmalted spelt. So it's truly a farmhouse, truly a rustic beer. And we used Saison um, Stein from Omega because that stuff is just a beast. It just chews away everything. And then we used a little bit of Kvike um you know to kind of keep it kind of funky and weird and that beer that beer sold so fast it was insane i mean we had a lot of people helping right you know coven a, a new brewery which is female owned uh she was part of it so we had a lot of uh you know motive force behind it people wanted to support coven because they were new people wanted to support the uh apiary and the tea shop people wanted fans of horror were big into the may queen thing uh, that beer was gone in two weeks. We brewed, we brewed uh, 20 barrels of it because we're only a 10 barrel brew house. But 
we were shocked at how fast a saison went, you know. So we'll see. We'll see if that continues or if it's just a blip. Um, are you guys using thialized yeast? Are y'all exploring the thialized yeast uh, thing phenomenon that's going on? What's your kind of viewpoint on that? Um, I like it. I'm intrigued by it. I've used some of it. Um, I've used Cosmic Punch and one other one. I can't remember the name of the other one, but uh, from Omega. What's weird is that people are using it, I think, wrong. I think they're using they're trying to take advantage of thialization while doubling down and using exotic punchy hops already. And that's not what it does. Right. I'm not saying if you took that beer and ran it through like a, a gas chromatograph or whatever, you don't have more of those compounds or some different compounds, but if you're going to use thialized yeast, why are you using galaxy mosaic, um, motueka, Rakao, um, citra? Cause it's just going to get lost in that cacophony of, of, of flavors right it's just crazy right because th those already have so many unbound thiols why are you trying to free bound thiols from things that have unbound thiols galore right exactly exactly so if you're if you're brulosophy people and you listen to my uh horrible voice years ago i would often use that analogy about whispering in a church or talking loudly in a church versus a concert right i don't go to church so i assume they're quiet but uh Basically, you know, if you're having a, a mild conversation in church, you stick out like a sore thumb, right? It's a quiet hall. Same thing with brewing with thialized yeast and making in these loud hops. You know, if you have citra and, and a galaxy, I don't think a little more of these compounds are going to make a difference. It's not, it's certainly not a game changer. I'm not saying it doesn't add nuance, but where those shine is taking a lot of these old world hops, you know, these Sazer type hops, uh, Noble-esque hops and some old world English hops and uh, often using them in the mash or first wort hopping and then using the thialized yeast, which will take those precursors and beget these tropical citrus flavors, right? So it's very neat to me to make a beer with Saz and then get a beer that you would consider to be fruity, you know? Well, and even Cascade is cheap enough that it's kind of cool to take something that's so grapefruit forward like Cascade and get some of that funky fruity stuff as well. So, mm -hmm. um, But it changes it, right? So if you use Cascade, it's a good example. And I don't remember if Centennial, because, you know, Centennial used to be called Super Cascade. But like Cascade's another one they'll, they'll tell you about trying to use. So instead of it just being one note grapefruit and pine, I guess that's two notes, but unless other than just being packed Northwest grapefruit pine, you use Cascade and the thialized yeast and you would swear you had to use some Azaka. So that's, that's where it shines. That's the neatness. That's the brewing trick. So that to me is the interesting part, you know, plus cost per pound of Cascade versus uh, something like Citra or galaxy is huge yeah right now in the market spot buying you can probably get cascade for nine bucks a pound you can get you know galaxy uh australian galaxy uh well i don't know i'm not sure what it is right now but it, it had been as high as like 23 up to 26 a pound which is insane uh it usually hovers around 18 19 a pound so it's half the cost if you can get if you can layer some of that in you know some cascade and use a thialized yeast then i think you're i think you're doing something 
And, and for homebrewers, um, you know, we, we, you guys could, you guys could take a, a batch and split it, you know, brew a five, I mean, depending on your system, whatever, brew a five gallon batch, get two, three gallon carboys, pitch one yeast and one, one in the other and taste it side by side. That's fun to me, you know? So that's I've what I've done that quite recently, actually. Yeah. Um, speaking of, you mentioned philosophy earlier, a long time ago. I mean, it's been a, been a year or two, I guess. Um, just, uh, do you mind describing kind of your experience, kind of uh, maybe like what was one of your coolest experiences with philosophy? Um, maybe what kind of, if you're able to talk about what kind of led you to decide to step away from that whole gig? Um, well, I mean, we became friends from the interwebs and mostly I would be arguing with Marshall in a friendly way, more like a teasing way about, hey, you should do the experiments like this. Or, I used to do experiments my own. This is how I would do them. And instead of rebuffing me, he would say like, oh, okay. And so I kind of liked that. You know, he didn't just sit there and say, you know, fuck off. We're doing it our way. He was more like, oh, okay. Let's talk about that. And then at one point he was just like, well, you should just join us, you know, uh, stop criticizing and be part of the thing. And I'm like, well, why would I be part of the thing when I don't fully agree how you're doing it? <laughs> you know, But, uh, you know, it was educational fun. I took away great friends. I have, you know, I'm still, I'm still in contact with several of those people and, uh, Brian Hall, especially. Um, yeah, so that was the big takeaway. Um, obviously, early on, especially a couple of years ago, you know, Brewlosophy had a pretty quick rise of popularity. You know, it became nothing to being very popular podcast really quickly. So it'd be a lie to say it wasn't fun to be part of. You know, uh, it was really neat to have your work recognized by people. You know, people come up to you and say, oh my God, I recognize your voice. Or, uh, you know, I read your article. That's kind of nice, you know. And I, I used Brewlosophy on my resume to get my Miller Coors job, you know. I would link articles that I've written. I, I had shown them experiments that I've done. So they kind of take you more seriously. They're like, oh, yeah, you're a home brewer, but you're like, you're like doing something. Like you're, you're writing, you're, you're getting published, you know, even if it's on, on the internet. But, you, you know, you, you put work out there for the, for the public to consume. And my job at Miller Coors, they really found that attractive because I had to go in front of crowds and speak. So they wanted to see that I could do original content and talk. Um, helping them develop their process. You know, I think when I was there, we became, more, we became more rigid on how to do scientific experimentation. And I, I was much more pedantic than they were. I mean, several of the people on that crew are super sharp, you know, but they were trying to cater to a certain audience. And I was always pushing us, I think, to be more, you know, pedantic and more rigorous scientifically, you know, uh, and, and brewing, you know, really doubling down in the brewing nerdism. So I would try to go, you know, two or three levels deep. And then Marshall would pull me back one or two, trying to say, well, we have to make it more consumable. And we want to make the articles a decent length. And he was, he was really good at editing. He, he was a really good writer. So, you know, he would really get his hands in there and, and say, oh, well, let's just change the, this is, this is too cumbersome to read. It's too technical. Let's make it more consumable. Um, so I think I became a better writer being at Brewlosophy just from watching, watching Marshall edit my stuff. You know, it was like, it was like a flashbacks to college going through writing classes, like, nope, 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 you know? Uh, so I think I got, I became better for that. Brewlosophy really changed my approach to uh, disagreeing with people uh, because sometimes the data will just, you know, it's like a brilliant, sexy, 
beautiful theory smashed to bits by facts. Uh, you have a theory, you think this matters, and then the average person can't tell. So, I mean, is it, is it the best study? Is it the best data collection process? Is it the best data set, meaning the people who are? No, no, but it's better than anyone else was doing at the time. And I really liked that. I really liked the fact that we were actually collecting data, you know, and we, even though we'd get hammered on by some, you know, keyboard warriors about our statistical analysis method, our collection method, like, you know, we didn't flaunt it too much, but we had consulted people who, that was their literal job. You know, they were statisticians and we compromised. We said, okay, this is how we want to do it. They would say, oh, it'd be better if you did it this way. And then we'd try to find a compromise in, somewhere in, in there. But, you know, we, we didn't just pull it out of, out of our asses. You know, we were consulting people. So those contacts we were making for those couple of years I was with Brewlosophy, you know, some of those people I'm still in touch with. You know, there was actually a guy at Miller Coors at Milwaukee who was part of the lab who knew who I was from fucking Brewlosophy. So he, he is running a lab at one of the largest breweries in the world and he knows who Brewlosophy is, you know, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, and I, I will attest personally to Marshall's uh, editing skills because I've done some TBC experiment articles and the way that he can take your, not that it's wrong, but cobbled together language and just make it like actually pop and super readable, mm -hmm. but still stay yeah. to the point is, uh, it's magical just by being around it. You can definitely learn some, some pointers and some tips there. So that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So um, what kind of made you decide to kind of step aside? Were you just getting busy, just getting too wound up in some other things? Yeah, busyness. Um, uh, you know, it was a bunch of things all at once and it was no like, there was no trigger moment, you know? So it was mostly, I was busy, especially when I was with Miller, Coors and Terrapin, I was traveling a lot and I didn't have a homebrew system for almost a year and a half. Um, I did a couple batches and experiments with Schoolhouse so uh, that was awesome. Tom was super nice to help me out with that. Um, Cause he used to, you know, listen and read philosophy. So he was like, yeah, we should do that here. It was really cool. So that helped keep, it helped kick the can down the road. But at that point I wasn't contributing every month and it just wasn't realistic, you know? So when I was home, I tried to arrange my schedule because I was kind of in charge of my own schedule with Miller. So I could be home so I could coach my kids soccer occasionally. You know, I was always an assistant, so I couldn't be there for all the games and all the practices. So I was trying to coach, trying to be a dad, trying to not get divorced, uh, trying to do my job. So the, there was no more room for philosophy uh, unless I did podcasts. So that's what that was the compromise at first was I would I would tell Marshall, I was like, hey, just use me as a tech expert. So I, I would do like tech editing. They would bounce some stuff off of me. And then I would do some, uh, you know, podcasting you know, interviews and stuff. And, uh, that was working for a little while, but, you know, with, with being a part owner of a 412 brewery here in, in Pittsburgh, where I'm mostly technical advisor running this project at hop farm, uh, potentially starting a third project on my own right now. Uh, that's a lot of stuff, you know, so, you know, Marshall and I talked and, Actually, I still have his recorder and he's like, Hey, you want to send that back to me? You know, and then we were kind of just BSing back and forth. And he's like, Are do you want to start contributing again? I'm like, Well, I can't homebrew like once a month. I was like, But if you want to talk about something I can do, like, you know, 
some pro brewer insights are, you know, things that extrapolate from home brewing to large scale. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to do that stuff. If you want to just have like a nerd hour once a month and we can put me on. Like right now we're asking a lot of personal questions, a lot of uh, experiment questions, which is I'm fine with. Um, but if you, if you guys wanted to host, like, just like what's, what's really needle into thialize, they thialize compounds. Let's talk about precursors. Let's talk about this precursor begets that end product. You know, I'd be willing to do that. You know, I think there's a space there for me there. Cause that is my, that is my passion. That is my love is talking about formation of chemical compounds that beget yumminess. That's what I like, you know? Are you still competing at all? Or are you or, or judging or is that kind of? Yeah, I judge homebrew stuff locally. Um, I, I hope to continue that. I think it keeps you sharp. I just brewed, I just judged, um, I judged that homebrew gone because it was in Pittsburgh. I judged uh, a brewers in Pennsylvania had a big, cool, like whole state competition, which was really awesome. So brewers in Pennsylvania is a Facebook group, but it's like a promotional group. And they wanted to invite a bunch of home brewers in different locations. And the competition was held at different breweries throughout the state. And then the three top places at each location will come together and, and compete. So I judged that to help with that. Cause that was like something that was near and dear to my heart. I always wished there was a like best of Pennsylvania thing when I was home brewing, uh, just didn't exist. Um, I'm going to judge at GABF, uh, so yeah, I'll continue doing that. I, I really think in my experience, the best, the best brewers judge, at least for a little while, you know? Um, I like this question and then I'll get to Will's question in a second. Cause it's sillier, but what's your favorite swill beer? Uh, well, swill. Oh, come on. <laughs> you know? uh, so I think I know what you're saying. If you're talking about like American adjunct lagers or cheap, cheap dad beers, um, I'm a hams guy. I've been unabashed about my my love of hams. Hams is a bit sweet, but I like hams a lot. Uh, banquet, you know, of course, banquet also sweet. If you like uh, uh, iso amyl acetate, if you're a banana fan, drink some uh, Coors Banquet and tell me there's not banana in that. It tastes like bananas foster. It's like caramel and bananas. Um, right now, I drink some Iron City, which is a local Pittsburgh beer. Yeah, I saw that face. Uh, I think it's better now than it was a couple of years ago. Um, uh, I like iron city light actually, you know, it's a crusher. It tastes barely of anything, uh, sweet corn, you know, a little bit of hop bitterness, but, uh, I'm trying to think what else I've been drinking lately. Um, I think my favorite cheap beer is Miller light. Miller light is a, it's a good beer. It's a really good beer. Who's waving? Is that a kid? Uh, Dick's waving. Which you uh, mean, Dick? Is that your kid? Hey kid. Oh Yeah. That's his daughter. It's all good. Well, hey, daughter. He's got some good kids. He's giving them ice cream. I want ice cream too. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I love Miller Lite. Miller Lite has beer flavor. It tastes like, um, you know, grain. It has grain. You can smell the, the hop a little bit, um, which is kind of funny because it's extract. But, uh, you know, it tastes like a little bit of caramel malt, a little tiny bit of caramel malt, and it tastes like grain. Whereas I think, like, you know, Bud Light tastes like green apples to me and licorice. Like if you have a, I'm not sure what you call them in your area, but like a red, red licorice or a, a, around here, they call them red vines in, in Pittsburgh because we're crazy. 
But uh, drink like, I mean, yeah, drink a Bud Light, bite like a red licorice, and tell me not the same flavor compounds. Look at that cutie with the red hair. I love your hair, honey. Hi, can you wave? <laughs> Hi. Hi, redhead. Um, so, uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, I think so, I think so Miller Light it's like a. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Talk about Miller Light, man. And then we'll talk about. Oh, uh, Miller Light tastes to me like someone took a Pilsner. Yeah, um, Miller Light to me tastes like someone took a Pilsner or a, a Hellas and diluted it down a little bit with seltzer water. That's what it tastes like to me, uh, which is which is fine and dandy when you're on the on the water in a canoe, or if you're fishing, or if you're playing cornhole, right? Uh, so yeah, pr those are probably my favorites. Miller Lite, Hams, uh, Iron City, which is local, uh, Genesee Cream Ale. I drink a lot of that. Yeah, I got some nods back yeah. there, approval. Yeah. I, I live in Texas and there's nothing wrong with a good old Miller Lite on a hot hundred degree day or a, a good Lone Star. It's all good to me. So, um, yeah, so yeah. Will, who had the beautiful redheaded daughter, uh, asked if you could turn yourself into a pizza, what kind of pizza would it be? <laughs> oh, I am, uh, I'm a pizza fanatic, man. Uh, me and my family make pizza a lot. Uh, it's, it's trying because, uh, I'm trying to stay under 180 pounds. I'm, I'm only five, nine, so I'm not a real tall dude. Uh, so to me, five pounds shows up. And pizza is an easy way to add five pounds. <laughs> so, you know, we do everything ourselves. We make our own dough, our own sauce, uh, do a lot of cheese combinations. My favorite pizza that I made was something I formulated for my wife. And it was uh, our standard, you know, Neapolitan dough, uh, goat cheese, arugula, balsamic reduction. And then on top of it is uh, uh, reduced mushrooms and onions, like red onions. Uh, and it's not a lot of toppings. It's like just enough so that maybe every few bites you get a piece. So it's not like America where every bite has to have a pepperoni in it. You know, the arugula goes on right at the end. It kind of wilts a little bit. Every couple bites you get that sting of that uh, balsamic vinegar. You get a sting of that cheese. And then it contrasts really well with the pepperiness of the arugula. So uh, that's my, that's my show off pizza. If I'm going to show off. Dude, you had me at caramelized red onions, like uh, any kind of <laughs> onion on a pizza. Yeah. And, and some I, arugula, that, that sounds badass to me. I, I am really a fan of these wilted salads lately. I've been making a lot of them. Uh, so you take like one or two toppings, you know, and you, you saute it, and then you have your greens, and then you just drizzle this warm, uh, you know, the liquid from the saute and these slightly tenderized vegetables right on top of the, the salad. It's just amazing. It's just, oh. It's like a game changer and you can have someone over for like barbecue or steaks or something like that. And they will talk about that wilted salad. It's crazy. And it's a perfect opportunity. If you have like garden, if you have some herbs and stuff, you take a couple of those herbs, you throw it into your saute liquid with the, your oil and your acid, whatever that is, you know, wine or, or your acid could be vinegar or whatever, you know. Um, but you have your, your acid and uh, sometimes a juice. So you can just squeeze a lemon in there or squeeze like a, you know, a pomelo or grapefruit, get some acid in there. And that, that sauce is now a perfect flavor extraction for an herb. So you just take some thyme or rosemary, put it in there. You drizzle that on top of the salad. People will talk about the salad. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Apparently I need to make more wilted salads is what I just learned. Um, yeah, we're right. right up on an hour. I want to be honoring of your time. I don't want to like over keep you. I know you got stuff going on tonight. 
Well, my wife's my wife's out, so you can you can cut me. I'm fine with that. Uh, but if people have nerd questions they want to send me, go ahead. My wife went down the road, so uh, I'll Sweet. give you another 15, no. 20 minutes. That's perfect. What what would be your desert island beer if you could take one beer on a desert island with you? What would it be? Oh, that's tough, man. Uh, this that was funny enough. That was a Miller Coors interview question. Um, it really changes. I mean, you can't go wrong with Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Um, it's just good. It's just balanced. Um, I used to be a big Tank 7 fan from Boulevard. Uh, and Pil- Pilsner, un- Tank Beer, unpasteurized, unfiltered uh, Pilsner or Kel. Whew, tough to beat that. Tough to beat that. It, so it I, I think, so I think if I went to Desert Island, had that, so if, if I went to Desert Island, and had either... Said, go ahead, go ahead. Say again. Said so or, oh, yeah. his answer was Orval, because it would change yeah. the entire time you were there. Uh, Orval um, is definitely up there. So I think one of the questions I was given at a job interview was like, if you could fill out seven taps, what would they be? And so if you know you're a, you have your dream spot location, you're, you're doing a, you know, you're not a brewery, you're a, a tap room. What would your I think I think it was seven, it might have been five beers, whatever. So the first question I asked was, is this for me or is it for commercial viability? <laughs> because commercial viability is different than for me. So to me, uh, Orval would be on there uh, for sure. That is one of the most beautiful beers in the world. Uh, I just did a Brett bottle conditioned uh, farmhouse ale with a local home brewer. Her name is Zach. And I called the beer Zachary. Uh it's not as good as Orval because that would be stupid to say, uh, but it is in that that zone. It has like that that like funky pineapple with a little bit of caramel malt and just super bone dry. And I I love it. It's one of my favorite beers I've ever made. I think. Uh, send me a bottle. I want to try it. Uh... I can do that. Text me later. <laughs> I, I have a lot of it, and it's it's a funky saison, so it's not exactly burning the, the doors down. You know, people aren't people aren't lined up outside for it. So, yeah, we can we can arrange a beer swap. That sounds really good. Um, yeah. Uh, so Miller Coors. So uh, the other wheel wants to know, like, what was kind of that process, the Miller Coors interview process? What are some other fun interview questions that you've gotten? So that was an awesome job. Um, I got really sad when they were starting to dissolve that team because it showed a shift to me. I think Miller, the way it differentiated itself from, you know, AB and a couple other brands was that it showed that it really cared about beer nerdism, about beer quality, about speaking the language. So we had a team that was all about innovation and our job was to teach marketing and our sales force and, you know, just everyone in the company up top to bottom. We, we had these classes that was called beer merchant or beer champion, depending on, you know, they changed over a couple of years, but, uh, they wanted you to be able to talk to brewers and talk to a woman who was buying a beer and asking the, the prototypical questions. Like a, you want to teach a staff to be able to talk to a, a, a woman who thinks she only likes fruity beers because all she's ever been offered, right? The sexism. So a woman goes to a bar and someone offers her a line in Kugel's because she's a woman. So we were trying to sit there and say, hey, this is a huge... of the population is female. Why are we trying to shoehorn them? You know, that's ridiculous. 
Uh, and it's because of selective marketing that we've always done. It's lazy marketing. So instead, you sit there and ask a person what they like, what do they enjoy, and then you try to steer them towards a beer that would fit that need. Uh, so we did a lot of market training, a lot of Salesforce training. And then we also talked with the innovation team about making a beer that would fit the market. Unfortunately, because it's a corporation, a lot of times, you know, you have this beautiful, you know, sports car in mind and out the other end comes a Yugo. Because <laughs> you know? that's how corporations work. And a lot of the things that they would do would get distilled in the process of corporatization in which you know, you're trying to make this, we used to make these beers called deep eddies or big eddies. And they were these, these unctuous stouts and it was part of the uh, line and Google's platform. Well, it died because the, the customer who was going to go buy line and Google was the Shandy customer. So when they were making a big flavorful stout, people did not accept it. Uh, there were, there was a, a education expectation gap that had to be filled. So we were trying to fill that gap but it was easier just to abandon it, you know, cause they had turned at that point, a line and cool into a Shandy brand, which just really bothered me. But uh, so what they decided to do is start doing those things with their other craft brands. So, you know, Terrapin had wake and bake. So customers accepted wake and bake from Terrapin. They did not accept a big stout from, from line and cool because of bias. Right. Uh, so I think, the main thing I took away from Miller Coors was how to talk the language of selling, how to sell beer, how marketing works. I didn't always agree with it, but these people were not dumb. You know, they were hiring people from, from like, you know, Frito-Lay, you know, American Foods. They were hiring people from Pepsi and, and Coke, um, from Google. You know, they had some of the best marketing minds in the world. You know, uh, and they were, I just learned an immense amount about brand positioning, consistency of messaging, delivering on expectation, uh, not pigeonholing yourself because we have done it because we had done it at Miller Coors, uh, how not to destroy a brand like Budweiser did with Shock Top. Uh, you know, it's stuff like that, that I learned, but you asked about interview questions. One of my favorite interview questions was I'm sitting across from, you know, two master Cicerones because our team was mostly master Cicerones and a few advanced. So this going guy, Jason Pratt asked me, uh, tell me about how diacetyl is formed. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. That sounds fun. And he goes, start with precursors. <laughs> I was like, okay. I was like, do you want me to talk about like uh, valine or isoleucine? And he smiled. He goes, yes. So I, I went through that and went through the pathway as best I could. And I knew who I was talking to. So I could not bullshit this man. He was like a master degree chemist and he worked in the lab at Miller course. So I did the best I can. I gave that caveat saying like, Hey, I'm going to say some things wrong here. I'm going off of memory. He's like, fine. And then he turned around. I wasn't even finished my answer. He goes, same question, but now you're explaining it to a server at Buffalo Wild Wings. So that's what you needed to do at my job was be able to talk to a brewer talk to a lab technician about the technical side, but you had to be able to flip the switch and give a presentation to 50 people who worked for uh, Applebee's, you know, and hold their attention. So I had to be able to sit there and talk about the asshole and make it light and make it fun. Talk about like who wants butter in their beer. You know, you, we used to call it being a beer clown, you know, you have to be a beer clown, but a professional beer clown, you know? 
So that was that was one of my favorite. You deal with the customer, so the engineers don't have to. You're a yeah, people person. Yeah. I'm a people person. Why can't you see that? <laughs> yeah, and that was it was funny for me because I'm I can be very curt and I can be very to the point. I'm an engineering mind, um, but you know I like to joke and I like to have a good time. And I like to educate, and I didn't realize how much I liked adult education until I was in that job. It's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Um, so you talked a little bit about your own project. Are you at liberty to to chat about that? Or are you? Yeah, I'm just looking for a space. Yeah, I'm thinking about maybe doing a fermentation space, but one of the partners wants us to just buy a brew house. Um, it's easy to say, oh, what's an extra $250,000, you know, uh, but to me, there's so many brew houses around these cities that are idle two or three days a week. So I would like to do a fermentation. It's been done other places, so it's not like it's a new idea. Um, but I want to concentrate on lower volume beers and just make it more of like a, an experience. Um, so a lot of farmhouses, bottle condition stuff. Um, uh, so it's elevated, but it'll be a small space to not have to worry about that over. I don't need to sell, you know, uh, 20 barrels a week of hazy. If I have a small space, um, I would probably stay on at hop farm and, and 412. And this would just be a passion project. You know, uh, some of my investors, potential investors, cause we're on the, the chit chat phase. Uh, they want to go bigger. They want to do a typical brewery. So one of the things I'm talking about is maybe melding the two. You know, I'm okay with doing some hazies and, and sours, but I don't want to be doing what everyone else is doing. And that's like almost one bag of puree, which is like 45, 44 pounds per barrel. You know, some of these places making 10 and 20 barrel batches are adding 10 and 20 boxes of, of puree. You know, it's not even beer. It's 50% sugar from the fruit. Uh, it's still a beverage. It's still delicious, you know, if you like baby food. Uh, but it's not beer, but it's a beverage. It's an adult beverage, right? It's, an, it's a low alcohol beer daiquiri, uh, which is a thing. And that's cool. But I would like to do it more refined, like, you know, bring it back a little bit, start hovering around like the, you know, four or five bags of fruit per 10 barrels, which still is insane, but make it like fruit flavored beer. Uh, in more classics, but I think a lot of brewers, people like us, we say we want to do that. And then you realize that you're not making money. So I am not afraid if, if we do a bigger project, I'm not afraid of doing some uh, more, more refined hazies. So not super, super sweet uh, hazies, maybe letting them age. I like, I think uh, hazies need to uh, cold condition longer than most people do. A lot of places I go to, especially on their new releases, their cans are their tap. They have a lot of hop burn, like a lot. And I think it's, uh, I don't think it's palatable. I think it causes palate fatigue. And I'm into cold aging hazies a little more. You don't get that thick milkshakey hazy. It's kind of in between, but that's what I like. That's why I, I want you to be able to drink for them. You know, so we'll see, um, but I'm food, I'm a foodie. So the place that I, I want to open should be uh, have food first. So we're looking at kitchen spaces. And I want to do some simple pies and, you know, wilted salads. And, you know, I don't want to be too bougie because that turns off and now you're at a slight crowd. But I think you can do like elevated pub fare. So it's just like, a, you know, typical, typical pub fare with a twist. You know, who says you can't have a pickled beet on a, on a hamburger, you know? 
stuff like that. Well, and, and I noticed like a lot of breweries like that don't have food. Like some of them have food, and if the food's really good, you'll go there just for the food, even if the beer's mediocre, right? Right. Just for a place to hang out, but um, yeah. But like food, it's what keeps people hanging out, ordering more beers. So. Yeah, I, I found like uh, right now a lot of places that are a combo that they have food and beer. You know, a lot of times their food is uh, anywhere from thirty to sixty percent of the revenue. So tickets are, you know, cashier till numbers at the end of the week, end of the month, you know, at, at Hop Farm, we hover around 30%, you know, but we are a brewery with a kitchen. There's a local place named Cinderlands. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, I don't know their numbers, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're over 50% food, you know. There's another brewery in town, which is uh, very food centric, and they're like 60%, 70% food sales, you know. And uh, That's awesome though. I mean, at least they're, at least they're going on something. Yeah. Um, there's one in kind of a bougie neighborhood, like an old money neighborhood. Uh, you know, so it's an older demographic, like, you know, 45 to, you know, 65. And it's a restaurant first, I think. It's a restaurant with a brewery in it. And they hover around 60% sales uh, of food. And their beer is decent, but they don't distribute, you know, very, very limited, if, if any distribution at all. I don't recall seeing them out. Uh, so basically instead of buying beer, they're making their own beer and their food is their seller and they have multi-million dollar revenue. So they're not, they're not pikers, you know, they're not amateurs. They're, they're making real money and, uh, it's mostly food, you know? So I'd like to have a small kitchen. That's that's, amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have a cold IPA centric, uh, beer brewery with a, a kitchen, right? <laughs> I just made a cold IPA with uh, one of the best brewers in the, in the city. His name is Steve Sloan. He owned a place called roundabout and uh, we made a cold IPA. We used 3470, you know, Vine Stefan yeast. Uh, we fermented it cold and it was uh, dry hopped and, and um, biotrans hopped, the fermentation hopped with uh Rakao and um, uh, New Zealand cascade. It's called Tahiki. It's one, probably it's one of the best beers I've ever made. That and that Zachary. So my two best beers have, have been collabs. <laughs> uh, it was just amazing. It was so. It was the first beer I made professionally that I thought would stand up against some of the best professional brewers I had brewed with and mentored under. So uh, once again, I'll never claim it was as good as a a Fathead's beer because that's ignorant. But it was the first time where I tasted it. I was like, this has hop flavor and aroma. This carries hops through the entire palate, which is what you get from a good Fathead's beer. Uh, I was just really proud of it. And I was glad I did it with this guy who I considered a mentor as well in the industry. Because uh, I didn't want to do a collab with him and disappoint him, you know, because he's so good. Uh, so that, that was a cold IPA. But I think if you gave it to most people and just said, what is this? They would say it was an IPA, you know, West Coast. I'm not sure what the cold IPA thing was. Uh, <laughs> you use 3470. That that was yeah. the cold IPA but if you, part of it. I don't, I don't do the untapped thing very much because I want to stay sane. But if you look, uh, if you Google, like it's called Little Diddy, like Little Diddy about Jack and Diane, this the song. Little Diddy Hop Farm, you'll see the beer. It's like brilliantly crystal clear. Um, it tastes like, you know, tangerine and, and passion fruit. It's amazing. 
Give me a nerd question. So, uh, packaging. What's your packaging process for competitions? And then, do you have a packaging line at Hot Farm? And we talking homebrew? How can we be- start homebrew and then talk talk commercial? So for homebrew, I I was very very big into purging my kegs really well. So I used to add a little bit of. Um, and I think my rates and my numbers are probably in some philosophy articles. Uh, not only in mine that I wrote, I think, uh, Matt, uh, pretty much Matt, what it was, but I think they had shared my numbers, but I would, I would use a metabisulfate in water. So you, you have a sulfated water solution in my keg, fill it up. And then I would purge it with either CO2 or residual fermentation CO2. So it's purged. Um, and that pushes the water out and it leaves behind just the CO2, right? So theoretically, you have a inert environment. Not It's not gonna be 100%, never is. But the combination of doing the, the solid water because water is non-compressible and it's sulfated, you know, metabisulfate. Uh, I think I use mostly use sodium metabisulfate uh, water. And I think I only tried to get to like eight or 10 PPM. So not like a high amount. So we're talking just like, it was a couple tenths of a gram in, in five gallons. Like I said, I think the numbers are on brewlosophy somewhere. If you can't find them, someone ask me and I'll give, I'll, I'll try to look them up for you. But sulfated water, push that out. And then I would push I would do a, a pressurized transfer from my fermentation vessel into my keg. So potentially close to zero oxygen pickup on transfer, theoretically. Then when I went to the bottle, I would bottle condition if it made sense to do so. I would use CBC1, which is a bottle conditioning yeast, and it's sticky. So it falls out of solution real quick. It doesn't kick a lot of sulfur. It doesn't kick up of full-on fermentation and give you diacetyl and acetaldehyde. So I would add a little tiny bit of yeast in my package and then bottle condition with it. Now, I might not do that if it's like a crystal clear lager, right? Because you don't know how the judge is going to handle. But if it's a beer that can handle a little bit of haze or if you get a little bit of experience with it, uh, that CBC is so sticky, it's, it's very much like what you see on uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, you know, that little little tiny dusting in the, in the, in the ridge of the bottle. Uh, I think it helps preserve the beer. I think it helps preclude oxygen. Uh, if you don't want to go that route, I don't blame you. I would do a semi-pressurized evacuation of my bottles. So I would use a beer gun with a, uh, with a stopper. And you can either peel back the stopper with your thumb or actually I would use a, uh, like a sports ball pin and I would drill a hole, a tiny hole, put the sports pin, the inflator needle through the hole, cover it with my thumb, use the beer gun, purge it till it got pressurized. You can feel it start to kick your thumb off or kick the stopper off. And I would just let my thumb up a little bit, let it sit. And I would purge much longer than I had to. And then I'd go sniff the needle hole. And if it like burned your nose, I'd go, okay, that's good. Um, I started doing some experiments with that guy, Steve Sloan, with his Orbisphere. And I, I, I got a number down. I forget what it was, like, you know, 30 seconds would get me near zero PPB, PPB, uh, parts per billion. 
So I would just purge the living hell out of my bottles. And then I would go right to beer, you know, and I would, I would go up to the top. So I would leave maybe this much, this much room in the top of the bottle, not, not the whole half neck. Like you see, typically I would go a little closer and uh, it's best if you have someone who can immediately cap for you, you know, or yourself. Uh, it's slower and messier if you're doing it yourself. So I would come out and as I came out, I would start squirting the CO2 on top of it. So you have CO2 on that top space. It's like, so as I'm pulling out, pulling out, pulling out, right at the end, when I'm trying to get the beer level right close to the top, my beer gun's almost all the way out and I'm starting to spray a little bit of CO2 and you can see it kind of flutter the top of the beer and then boom, I'd cap it. Uh, if you want to go really pro is you would put the cap on, you'd whack it with a, a spoon or a wrench or whatever, and it would push a little bit of gas out and then you cap on foam. And that's what, that's what fatheads does for competitions. They would, they would agitate the bottle you know, you will occasionally break one, <laughs> you know? but you give it a good wrap, you know, evac that space. I have won a competition with a six month old uh, American pale ale, you know, in, in competitions. So that, that, that either mean my, my pale ale was good or the rush of the competition was bad. I don't know, but <laughs> uh, some combination thereof, but I, I have, I have one with, you know, half a year old IPAs and pale ales. If you, if you well, judges obviously had a shitty palate, right? So exactly, exactly. <laughs> professionally, awesome. um, uh, professionally, it's it's so complicated, man. I mean, if you're not measuring with a meter into the PPB range, it's all guesswork. So you have to get either either a C box from Antown Par, um, or Orbisphere from Hawk, or a Gehaltometer uh, from uh, Pentair Hoffman's, right? You need these pieces of equipment and they're between 15,000 and $35,000, right? And most breweries decide to buy another tank instead of a oxygen meter. But when you're messing with things like the, the purge duration, the purge pressure, when you're mes messing with your uh, foam over, your cap on foam, and when you're messing with your seamer, everything is blind until you're measuring. So you, you make a tweak and you, you change your purge duration or your purge pressure and you think, oh, that looks better. And then counterintuitive, you've actually increased your oxygen pickup because what happened is you sprayed too hard with your CO2. And instead of it doing a, a quiescent fill of CO2 and, and purging that space out. So like, you know, you're trying to do CO2 and it's a little wand and it goes in there and it has like the gas misking up. If you go too fast, you, in, you instead create a vortex and it pulls oxygen in it's counterintuitive the other thing too is on a lot of these uh canning machines they have these lid flappers and right before the lid comes on so it comes through it picks up the lid and smashes down it has a little spurt of co2 a little spurt is nice it might kick up the foam and help help the foam come up and kick over so you're capping on a foam too much oxygen if you know anything about engineering principles is you have this spray of co2 that comes across this lid well, guess what happens when you spray across something? Who has ever used one of those uh, weed and feeders? You know, where you, where you cook up to a hose and it, sprays, <laughs> it pulls either this way or pulls this way. So that, that burst, that little spurt of CO2 comes across and it drags oxygen into it and goes right into your beer. Uh, and I've found people will increase their purge thinking more is better because we're Americans. So we're like, oh my God, dial this fucker to 11. 
Well, you created a vortex or a Venturi effect, pardon me. You created a Venturi effect and you pulled um, the air into your, your vessel. Same thing with, you know, beer gun. You're sitting with a home brewer and you're like, oh yeah, I'm just going to spray the fucking hell out of this thing. You know, you know, uh, you know, if you do it long enough, yes, you will evacuate. But I've found like on big tanks and in in breweries, if you, if you're not doing the fill it with water and, and purge it out method, if you go gently, gentle, fill it with CO2, pressurize it, and then blow it down real hard and then do it a couple more times, you'll get, it's a better evac. So you can try it with home brewing, you know, I'm not sure how you guys purge your, your kegs, your cornings or whatever you're using, but I like to, you know, pressurize it to like, you know, five pounds or whatever, then slowly bleed it down, pressurize it to five, five pounds, let it sit for a little bit, hoping for some stratification. It doesn't happen like instantly for what it's worth because you have like these currents and stuff. Um, so yeah, you fill it again with, with CO2, wait a little bit and then blow it down, do it a couple more times, but you get, a more complete purge filling and blowing down than you do doing a continuous trickle. Right. Cause you're waiting for the oxygen to kind of rise to the top of that CO2, right? It does two things. One. Yes. Yes. You get some stratification separation. So you, you hopefully you're preferentially removing this little cap of, of oxygen right here, right uh, up in the top. But the other thing is, is if you're always feeding, you know, in the, maybe in the bottom, you're feeding CO2 up, you know, at five, 10, 15 pounds, and you're purging out through, maybe through a valve. This is the same thing as for a corny keg. You have a little purge right here. So for a corny keg, you go in the poppet, the wand comes down, the CO2 is going like this. Well, it's coming like this and it's swirling. You have currents. So if you're continuously doing that and you're bleeding out here, yes, eventually you'll evacuate the space. But if you fill it, you evacuate the entire space you've already diluted this to a much higher degree in one shot than you will continuously doing a bleed and feed. The bleed and feed takes on average five to seven times longer than a three-time dump. So fill, pressurize, dump, fill, pressurize, dump. Um, that principle was driven into us in the nuke industry because if you have a, a, a tube rupture in your steam generator, you have hot side water comes in these tubes and now your steam generator is contaminated. Well, one of the methods is fill and dump, and the other one is a feed and bleed. Well, we have found, you know, through practice that it takes, you know, five to seven times longer to feed and bleed than it does to fill and dump, fill and dump. You get a more complete evacuation because you had some CO2. Let's just say your first fill and dump is 30% oxygen, 70% uh, uh, CO2. You, you evacuate it, and then you fill it back up with CO2. You know, but if you're sitting there continuously bleeding, you're like at 70%, 65%. You know, you're, you're only slowly diluting it. It takes much, much more CO2 to do a feed and bleed than it does complete uh, volume exchanges. So on the yeah. pro level, when do you guys test for dissolved oxygen? Immediately after canning. As soon as it's sealed, you have to test now because that oxygen will start reacting with the beer. So if you have theoretically 50 PPB of oxygen in your can, now obviously it's retarded with temperature, right? Everything happens slowly, more slowly with temperature. So that's Arrhenius's law, Arrhenius's rule. Uh, most reactions happen three to five times slower for every 10 degrees Celsius decrease in temperature. So 
if you take a beer that's cold, you know, off the package, it's probably gonna be like 37 degrees Fahrenheit, 35 degrees Fahrenheit. And you uh, take it and you, you have some amount of oxygen, some known amount of oxygen in that container. You have to measure it now. Because if you take it instead of the side and go, oh, we'll give that to the lab in a half hour. Well, that beer is consuming that oxygen. So what's really 50, 60 PPB is probably going to end up being 30 PPB. And now you're patting yourselves on the shoulders going, oh my God, we're 30 PPB. We're amazing. So I've, I've gone to these breweries, you know, for mm -hmm. consulting or whatever, or as a friend. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing like, you know, 30 PPB with our, our packaging line. I'm like, ooh, cool. And then I see the cans over there, like labeled for sample. I go, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, you you were probably around 50, 60, 70 PPB. By the time you test it, it's 30 PPB. You know, oxygen is one of the most reactive substances in, uh, in, in that we know about. That and pure sodium. Um, on the metabol sulfite, Alex brought this up. Uh, when you do it in advance with your water, um, does the sulfite sulfate solution continue to scrub O2 days later, or is it kind of like you put it in there and it's one and done, or it reacts all pretty fast? I don't remember the exact ratio of, of how much free sulfate. Uh, it will be, it'd be free sulfur at this point, but when the sulfate converts to sulfur and it uh, consumes oxygen, uh, there's a, a certain molar interaction ratio, right? And I just don't have it off the top of my head right now. But once it does that, it's done, right? You know, it, it's it's like this many moles of free sulfur will will consume this much oxygen, and then you're done. Now, if it brings it to zero, so if you have if you have enough sulfur, free sulfur from the sulfate, you know, metabisulfate, if you have enough free sulfur to consume all the oxygen in that water and in that headspace then it's over. There's no more oxygen. Now, if you have any ingress, you have a leaky gasket, um, as soon as you bring the beer in, right, the beer is going to have some, if, if you test the bright tank, even at professional breweries, and especially at home brewery, home breweries, uh, it's not zero. It, it's going to be like, you know, often between eight and, and 20 PPB of oxygen in your fermentation vessel. You're like, that doesn't sound right. You know, it was blowing off CO2 for like days. There's some level you know, unless, unless you have like a, a high sulfur yeast, like a lager yeast, there's some level of oxygen in there. So when you bring that eight PPB beer into your keg, which is now sitting at 20, 30 PPB, you have now 28 or 30 PPB in your, in your beer. So the idea is to get both as low as possible. So good fermentation practices, good transfer practices from your fermenter into your keg. If you've evacuated your keg with enough free sulfur to consume all the oxygen in the keg, but you've now purged that keg with CO2, which for what it's worth is not pure, right? It's 99.9 .9 or 99, if you use five nines gas, which is 99.999, uh, there's some oxygen there. So the idea is that you have a little bit of this water, you know, on the outside of your keg. And I mean, it's in the inside, but on the outside walls, you have a little bit of that water with some free sulfur available. So when you bring your beer in from your fermenter, hopefully it consumes that eight to 10, whatever you got in your fermenter PPB, you know, uh, but there's, it's almost never zero. You know, I've, I've gone into a bright tank with like 17 PPB of oxygen. That's after hours of a purge, but that's much better than it would have been had I not done hours of purge. So you accept 
some minimal amount of damage. So when you're kegging as a home brewer, your idea is to get the vessel to zero or close to zero. And the only way you can really test that is with a meter. So in practice, so in, in just like anecdotal evidence, I've found if I make like a eight to 10 PPB solution of water, it tends to lead to a beer that's very shelf stable with not having so much sulfur that I taste it. Because if you go too much, I'm not saying, I'm not sure what that magic number is. It's going to depend on the beer. It's going to depend on your sensitivity, et cetera, et cetera. If you, if you bring uh, your keg down to near zero with, you know, eight to 12 PPB um, metabisulfate, well, it, the eight to 10 PPB is, is the sulfate, not the, not the whole entire chemical, right? You, you're trying to dose this for eight to 10 PPB of sulfate. That, that space is near zero. You bring your beer in. I don't tend to be able to pick it up. I'm not saying all of a sudden at 15 PPB, you're going to be able to taste sulfur. But once you start getting into the 20 to 30 PPB of sulfate, I think you start to smell the, the, the egg, the eggy sulfurness. So that's me. I'm not sure what you are, but that's probably going to go away, right? Because what's going to happen is you're going to have some free sulfur. You bring your beer in, which is going to have eight to 10, up to 20 PPB from the fermenter. Your sulfur is now going to consume that if there's any residual left. Or over time, as this beer begins to oxidize, so it's going to be oxidizing, but the sulfur is going to protect it. So if you, if you overdose, you bring your beer into your keg and you're like, oh my God, I can smell sulfur now. You know, wait a day or two. It'd probably go away. You know, it's going to react with the beer. But sometimes I've seen it get so bad. Who, ha who here hasn't made a sulfur laden lager or, you know, notoriously a, a Saison or a wit beer? Wit beer isn't bad for it. Wit beer yeast and some Hefeweizen yeast kick a lot of sulfur. Um, so usually you're okay racking those into a not as well purged vessel because that sulfur from that fermentation will consume that oxygen you know so a lot of it just happens to know your, well, know your shitty palate do you do you of course I, of course i have a shitty palate well a lot of people I, think I so <laughs> i mean some people have it and they don't know it and it's better to just be able to say i do have a shitty palate you know uh, uh i just gotta lead in with i have a shitty palate so if you want me to taste them so i have a shitty palate and i got allergies so whatever <laughs> yeah cool yeah i mean a lot of it a lot of it without being able to test is guessing you know and you can you can purge a, a keg you can test your water with like an over-the-counter bob west hop aroma so i like the the three things you got going on there you know the, the slight toffee bready from the Amer from the british malts the slight earthy mushroomy soil flavor i like doing really really well and that's drier and then I volunteered to do a homebrew collab for one of the winners of the session beer categories. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, the person who won, won with a mild. So I wasn't going to not honor the collab. So we brewed his, but his was luckily a bit bigger, a bit chewier, a bit more cocoa chocolate. Mine's more dry and brown malt, you know? So mine's kind of, you know, what a mild is, is going to be like, what, what, what are you talking about? What decade are you talking about here? You know, of, of the beer's history. So mine's more what I think you might find on 
shut up about Barclay Perkins, more brown malt forward, more dry. And then later on when the beers became sweeter and then they came back around to dry again for its worth. But that middle pocket, when you have a home brewer competition, a lot of home brewers tend to, I think, brew in that, that like uh, four to 5%, you know, 4.5% mild, but their finishing gravity is like, uh, you know, four Play-Doh or 1016, you know, 1.016. Whereas I like to be down like, you know, 2.75 Play-Doh are like around 1010. You know, they're different. And, you know, so. Well, you know, and then you just call one an English pub ale, so it doesn't look like you have the same beer on tap twice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, old world mild versus new world mild. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Perfect. <laughs> or cool. middle, middle worlds. You call it the middle earth mild. Sure, sure. There you go. All right, gentlemen. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much, sir. We appreciate you. All Hopefully right. You have all your pumpkin spice beers ready to be tapped any day now. I think I'm going to make a, a pumpkin mole beer. That actually sounds pretty rad. I'm intrigued. All right, right, man. Cheers. Hey, thanks for having me on. Always nice to talk to homebrewers. Always nice to talk to the old Brewlosophy crew and uh, supporters. So keep it up. I'm really amazed what the brew club has become. So uh, this is awesome, guys. I I feel honored to to talk at your faces. Well, man, anytime you want to come on, anytime you want to come hang out, you're always welcome, brother. We really appreciate everything you've done with Brewlosophy and all the way going into now. And uh, so we're just, we're just thankful to have you here tonight and, and be able to talk anything from pizza to uh, yeah <laughs> salads to, uh, to to crazy ass beers. So it's awesome. Right on. That was fun. I, I like the fact that we got to talk about some food. So cool. All right, gentlemen. See you later. Later, man.